The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. it's time for the official introduction and for that let's introduce Sky Sparks class of 25. My name is Sky Sparks. I'm a junior here at Carleton College, and I am pursuing a double major in English and theater and a creative writing minor. Now you know everything about me, right? Not really. Let me try again, okay? Good morning. My name is Sky Sparks. I am a storyteller. I enjoy finding strange trinkets at the Northfield thrift shops, and um, I enjoy eating lemons like oranges. Okay, I hope you're paying a little bit more attention now. Uh, how is everyone doing today? It's Friday. It's also seventh week, which means it's seventh week. To make a short story shorter, we're all very busy, so thank you for sharing your presence and time with me here today. Um, you know, I feel really lucky to be standing in front of you guys um, because, you know, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, especially this term. This term has been really busy, and anything that's looked slightly interesting, I ran after it. I've been running a lot. <laughs> um, and if there's one thing that happens at Carleton, we know that we all get um, inspired by things, and uh, it's always been a problem for me. I mean, even when I was younger, I wanted to do everything. I remember I would watch The Princess Bride, and I was like, oh, I need to learn how to fence. And I would watch uh, Brave, the Disney movie, and I was like, guys, you know what I really need to learn how to do? I need to learn how to horseback ride and arch in a forest while bad guys are chasing me. And then I watched Criminal Minds, and I was like, oh, no, Spencer Reed, he's definitely where it's at. I want to become a behavioral analyst and write with my left hand. You know, in reality, I wanted a chance to experience everything in different realities. So the natural order, I guess, is just to become an actor. So that's where I am. I mean, it's an opportunity for multiplicity, and there's freedom with options, but there's also a necessity to attend to the responsibility that comes with risk and sacrifice. There are a lot of people who have sacrificed and supported me to get to where I am today, and people ask, how will you manifest this into a proper career? And I say, I'm going to go to grad school, and I'll figure it out from there. You know, I don't know exactly where I'm headed, but I know that I will arrive, and that is why our speaker today inspires me tremendously. She's an award-winning Harvard University Moscow art theater graduate, taking all the forms of an actor, playwright, director, and voiceover artist. Her performances have stunned audiences nationally, including our semi-local and lovely Guthrie Theater, and internationally in Germany, Russia, Canada, Ireland, Scotland, England, and Belgium. There's so many. The OCS programming must be really jealous. Um, you know, she is dynamic and expansive and continues to par carve a path for her passions. Today, we meet her as an honored alum and author of Returning the Bones. Offer a warm welcome back to Carleton College and today's convocation speaker, Jen Hammond. I'm remembering to hit the button. Ha ha. Okay. Hi, everyone. Good morning. It is such an honor to be back here and to be here with you all. Thank you, yeah, for taking the time. Um, Sankofa. If you don't already know it, Sankofa is a verb, it's a concept, it's a whole lot of things. And it's represented by this bird. It flies back forwards, but it's not afraid to look back. The concept of Sankofa is said to have originated in Ghana, and it proclaims that it is not taboo to go back for what has been left behind. There is something about the word taboo 
that feels applicable regarding my decades long of Sankofa, which began not long after I left Carleton, and resulted in the publication of my magical realism meets historical fiction novel, Returning the Bones, as well as my latest semi-comical theatrical work entitled Living Incognito. I want to share my journey with you in case you yearn for connection with your ancestors and need a little inspiration around how to get started. So yes, after Carleton, I moved to Minneapolis. I was living with my BFF from Carleton, hey Tara, and working 14 hours a day as an acting apprentice at the Children's Theater of Minneapolis, yet making so little money that I qualified for food stamps. Despite the poverty, I had never been so happy. Still, every now and again, I would experience what the Hungarians call hienjerzet, the feeling that something you cannot name is missing. It's a good word. Then, one day after another one of my father's older siblings passed, it hit me. I knew what it was I lacked. I realized that beyond my nuclear family, I didn't know my family's stories. I should mention that when I say family, I mean the black side of my family. My parents got married in 1966, a year before the Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court decision, if you're familiar with that. Yeah. And my mom, who's white, her parents, well, her whole family disowned her for marrying my dad. And they were brutal. For example, after a few years of no contact, my mom reached out to her parents to announce the birth of my older brother, and, they, and she sent them a photograph of her newborn baby. And they sent it back to her, their daughter, their only child, all torn to bits. This was a taboo topic for years. Still kind of is. <laughs> but you know what? Now I'm telling everybody. <laughs> I mean, for example, look, look what they missed out on, <laughs> this cuteness. I'm telling everybody because there is no shame in being rejected by idiots. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's why going forward, when I say family, please just assume I mean my dad's side. My grandfather was born in 1889, and my father was the youngest of his seven children, and I was the youngest of my dad's four. I assumed that by my mid-twenties, my family's stories would have trickled down to me somehow and, and just become a part of me, but that wasn't the case. In fact, it dawned on me how fragile family stories can be and that mine were on the verge of being lost. Note that there was no Ancestry.com, there was no social media, there was no texting, and the internet was still pretty new, but there were phone books. So, terrified, I flipped open my phone and started cold calling. Hi, I think I might be a relative. Hello? But then I got in touch with my Aunt Carolyn, a.k.a. Auntie Bibi. She was humble and soft-spoken, so it took 10 years of flying and prying. But I kept at it because, A, she had a grace that always made me feel welcome and accepted, and I needed that in my life, and B, Every now and again, she'd mention something that would make my jaw drop. It wasn't just about how she had done some work with Martin Luther King or, or how Lyndon B. Johnson had had a really inappropriate conversation with her or how she spent the day with Eleanor Roosevelt as her escort at Howard University. It was stuff about her own family, for example. Lucinda Murphy, my great-great-grandmother. Where was she? She was in Union, South Carolina. 
enslaved on the plantation of William Gist, who is known as the father of the Confederacy. He led the secession movement of the Confederate States. Can you imagine? Or my great-grandmother, Lucinda's daughter, Sarah. Family lore says that her father was a direct descendant of Alexander Hamilton. Notice how her face is at the same angle as his on the $10 bill. Um, so, you know, if there are any direct descendants in the audience today, let's just cheek swab so we can put the myth to rest or plan a family reunion. Then there's Prudence. That would be Sarah's daughter. She was a renegade librarian. There are so many stories about her. One involves her saving the colored library in San Antonio by joining arms with people in the community and staring down the bulldozers that had showed up to bulldoze the place. She won. That library still stands. And so does the Prudence Curry Society. And then there's her sister, my direct grandmother, Carolyn, who taught at an HBCU, had seven children, just that by itself. Mm -hmm. She helped my grandfather at his hospital, and she was psychic, especially about when people were going to die. And then the star of the show, my Auntie Bibi. That's her studying in London. She kind of looks like you, Skye. <laughs> That's right, a young black woman from the South was studying in Europe during the height of Jim Crow. There's a lot to that story. But this is what leads to the central question of the book, which is, how do you choose between your country, your people, and yourself? Then we have my grandfather's parents. There's Charlie Lee, he was a whole fashioned rootin', tootin', shoot 'em up, gambling, drinking kind of guy. And then the uh, really excited looking woman on the uh, other end is my, is my great grandmother, Betty, who is said to have been half Cherokee and a medicine woman. She features prominently in the book as well. I wanted to give her a much more exciting life than what I saw in that photo. I was like, I saw her and I thought, I have to write about you and, and give you more. And this interesting person is my great aunt Ella, who was passing and had an attitude. You'll see more of her in a minute, but for you creatives, she's a great example of how embracing uh, the weird and ridiculous can lead to some great stories. <laughs> and then my grandfather. He was one of the first black, tex black doctors in Texas and he not only started a hospital, which was the only hospital for blacks in the entire county, perhaps beyond, but he started a wide array of businesses and three schools that I know of. There's just too much to say about the man, but he uh, inspired legions of people and has been an example in my life of how one person truly can impact thousands generationally. And then we have, I have to show this picture, Bibi again. So she is sitting at the right hand of, your, of her father. You can see that uh, she was a child nurse. Imagine that. When she was a little older in her teens, she became a junior veterinarian. Imagine having that on your college application, fully trained RN and junior veterinarian. It gets worse, she graduated valedictorian from her high school at age 16, went on to become president of the student body at Howard, played multiple instruments, no pressure. And then lastly, for now, we have the Hammond Memorial Hospital, where the first half of the book and the play take place. Returning the Bones was first a play and then became a book. So learning about them was fascinating, but I needed a way to synthesize all of these stories so that I wouldn't forget them. My friend Christabel said, girl, just do what you do and make it into a play. And Krista was right. The more scattered bits of information I wove together, the more clearly I could see the tapestry as a whole. And a world revealed itself. 
As Emmanuel Baum Lee wrote, stories are a technology that have always allowed us to hold things greater than ourselves. Yes, it was fascinating, but definitely painful at times, too. It's painful, for example, to think about how colorism played out back then and now in my family and in the community. If you come from a multi-hued family, perhaps you've experienced what I'm talking about. But to look back, unflinching into the face of this taboo thing, brings me to a place of greater understanding. And greater understanding is often a path to love, and forgiveness, not always, of course, but often enough to keep me curious. To not face it means that where there was potential for evolution, only judgment remains obdurate and unmoving, like denial. Perhaps because I just launched my show about racial invisibility, living incognito, and saw the powerful effect it had on audiences, especially the multiracial and, interestingly, trans-identifying audience members. Today, I'd like to share passages from the book and the play that relate to passing. And also because passing is a massive part of American history, but we've barely scratched the surface. Passing, if you're unfamiliar with the term, uh, refers to passing for white. It implies the ability to move without obstruction, as in ticket to ride, as in move smoothly by, as in go along to get along, as in having the option of choosing one's battles. Paradoxically, the trope of the tragic mulatto existed in popular culture for over a century, sort of like minstrelsy. And this trope reinforced the idea that society is incapable of holding racial complexity without there being an inevitable tragic outcome. What if we created more stories that were the opposite of that? Oh, and for those unfamiliar with the trope of the tragic mulatto, <laughs> it typically falls into one of three categories. One. A woman passes for white successfully, falls in love with a white man, the truth is revealed, and it all ends tragically. Two, a woman who is passing presumes she is of Mediterranean descent. Her life is dandy until the big reveal, and it all ends tragically. Or three, a woman who is passing expresses herself with all the social graces of an upper-class white woman, but then is subjected to slavery which is tragic. But most of the time, tragic meant that, just like a lesbian in an old 1950s pulp fiction novel, the multiracial person gets killed off in the last scene or chapter. After all, we can't have them roaming feral through the land. By the way, did you notice that none of the principal characters in those tragic mulatto scenarios were men? It's not a popular trope anymore, thank goodness. Though I was in the first scenario, I was in one of those off-off-Broadway. Um, but as Mary Tyrone in A Long Day's Journey and Tonight says, the past is the present, isn't it? It's the future, too. We all try to lie our way out of it, but life won't let us. Anyway, <laughs> because plays are painted on the canvas of time, I had to be ruthless about which stories would make it from the page to the stage. But I thought this scene, which was true, this actually happened, um, and has to do with the topic at hand, was pretty undeniable, and I shall perform it for you. Okay, things to know about the following scene. A slop jar is another name for a chamber pot. You will meet great Aunt Ella, who, if you remember, was passing. There's a cousin who blows Aunt Ella's cover, a love-struck white sheriff, and of course, Bibi, the star of the show. At this point in the story, she's only eight years old, and for, for reasons you'll find out about, you can picture her in a mud-covered school dress. You'll just have to imagine the light changes, the sound effects, and know that we jump back and forth in time. Uh, the stairs to the house are downstage left, and you can see the horse 
of the sheriff through this window here. His name is Chestnut. And uh, the horse likes to make, no, <laughs> the sheriff likes to make the horse do tricks. One, two, three, for Aunt Ella. It's 1933. Bibi has been hiding under Aunt Ella's bed for about 24 hours and just woke up. Can you keep a secret? I hit a white boy. I've been hiding under this here bed for, for hours next to Annella's slop jar. Annella, oh, Miss Ella. She looks white, so she's doing all the talking to the sheriff downstairs. She is my granddaddy's sister, but whenever we're in public, my brother and I have to call her Miss Ella. So we just call her Miss Ella most all the time. Oh, see, what happened was I was walking home from school and the rain come up. I was wearing new shoes and the rain was really messing up my side of the street. The white sidewalk had pavement all the way to where I needed to get to. So I crossed over. But then that scabby need Bo Hatfield comes up to me, starts sassing me, and then he shoves me hard into a muddy pool of water. Well, I got so mad, I jumped up and popped him. And maybe I had a rock in my hand too. And his head started bleeding, and I got so scared, I ran like an Olympic hero all the way back home. I just couldn't face mother and daddy. And I didn't want to wake up Grandmother Sarah. So I hid in Miss Ella's room under her bed next to her slop jar, making my stomach turn sour. I am no stranger to emptying bedpans at the hospital, but this is hard to take. At first, Miss Ella didn't know I was under her bed. Then she got mad because she thought I was looking for my trunk full of Confederate money that my daddy left me. I, I told her what happened, and then <gasps> the sheriff. <clears throat> I wonder what Robin Hood would do if the sheriff of Nottingham was within spitting distance like Sheriff Brewster is to me right now. Well, he probably wouldn't have fallen asleep like I did, but I couldn't help it. They've been talking since forever. Shucks, you'd think they were boon companions. <gasps> Miss Ella, Miss Ella, what'd the sheriff say? What are they gonna do to me, Miss Ella? Oh, hush your mouth now, but hush now. Hmm. The sheriff has known me since the first day I arrived to this God-forsaken place to open up the schoolhouse. <laughs> uh, just wanted to welcome you to town, ma'am. Miss, Miss Ella. <laughs> Miss. Even had tea. <laughs> Clearly, the man had never held a teacup in all his natural born days. <laughs> Nervous? Yes, Lord, talk for quite a while. Then one of your blacker than midnight under a skillet cousins came to fetch me. And Ella, and Ella, what's keeping you on, Ella? It's supper time. And Ella. <laughs> Aunt Ella? Uh, ma'am, uh, miss. Uh, I don't mean to offend your sensibilities, but uh, you are a white lady, ain't you? Well, I, I sure ain't colored. Well, he left real quickly, like, but he tipped his hat on the way out. Knew I'd get by in this town. And do you know, I said, do you? know who benefits from my being here? Who, Aunt Ella? 
Miss Ella, it's you, you fool pickaninny. Child, what were you thinking? Hitting a white boy. Ah! And that's the end of that scene. <laughs> Thank you. I get to explain what she means by benefiting the family in the book. And I got to show how things for Annella were complex. When the dentist daddy hired to work at our hospital first came to town, he didn't believe it. Even when townsfolk told Dr. Lafayette what was what when it came to mother's visions? He'd shake his fancy tobacco pipe at them and say, please, I am a man of science. He came all the way from Hampton University in Virginia and speaks in a highfalutin voice that reminds me of Bean Crosby's. Dr. Lafayette grew up in New Orleans and gets real impatient with what he calls backwater hoodoo, especially among black folks always talking about how it drags down the race. But shortly after he arrived, the same week I hit Bo Hatfield, mother had a real special dream. It was about fire. She said she could hear sheep and cows and horses in the dream. So she sent word that everyone should go over to the barn and bring as much water as possible and to just keep on bringing it. This was in the middle of the night, but nobody asked any questions. They just did as she asked. About two hours later, three clansmen rode up to the barn, dressed in white pointy-headed sheets with the eye holes cut out. One of them was holding a torch. There were about, I don't know, maybe 50 of us there, surrounded by buckets and water troughs and the like. It was so, so quiet. I glanced over at Dr. Lafayette. His high, bald dome was shining with sweat, and his manicured hands trembled. Were more of them cunning? Was this the start of another Tulsa or Rosewood massacre? Another Slocum? Nobody budged or said a word. For the first time, I noticed how loud the sound of a single torch can be. That's when Ann Ella emerged from the house in her silk dressing gown, her long curly hair floating at her shoulders. She slow marched scarily close to the clansman at the front and locked eyes with him. The front horse stamped. One, two, three. It wasn't cold. But something about watching them gave me the shivers like crazy. Out of nowhere, the clansmen at the front signaled the others, and then they just up and rode away, torch and all. We went back to bed. Later that same week, Dr. Lafayette came over for Sunday dinner. Mrs. Hammond, he crooned after swallowing a bite of Mother's delicious peach cobbler. If you ever have any of those dying dreams about me, I'll just save everyone the trouble, walk on over to the funeral parlor, climb up on the cooling table, and wait it out. And that's that chapter. So it turns out not so great Aunt Ella had her role in a complex ecosystem, sort of like, you know, Bats. But she is one of the people who shaped Bibi's life, and my Auntie Bibi has shaped my life, including how I parent. And Sankofa teaches us to face our history and think about it and make conscious decisions about what to do and what absolutely not to do, <laughs> and what to incorporate into our own lives going forward based on what we've learned. Instead of leaving it up to happenstance and familial habits. It is not disrespectful. It is not taboo. Speaking of taboo, I so want to tell you about the big scandal uh, that happens with Ella and the sheriff so badly, but it's at the end of the book, so I can't. All I'll say is that it isn't tragic. 
Also passing, but far more kind, was Grandmother Sarah. You know, even though she had been born enslaved on the plantation in Union, South Carolina, she had a prayer that she said every day that she passed on to my Auntie Bibi, who passed it on to me. It goes like this. Take from me the desire to condemn other folk. Give us eyes to see the good in everyone we meet. And that's it. You could argue that the prayer is too simple in a Mr. Rogers kind of way, but few can dispute the power of Mr. Rogers. Honestly, with the current state of the country, reminding myself to cool my desire for condemnation helps me cope. And that's why I consider my great-grandmother Sarah's prayer an heirloom, an heirloom that cannot be taken away from me. When I began, I had no heirlooms aside from a small handful of photos that I didn't fully understand. And now, fully cognizant that returning the bones is a mix of verifiable facts with a dash of mythology, I have a wealth of stories that have made my life richer and have deepened my understanding of human connection. And these are all treasures that I can pass on to my son and share with the world. It is a treasure that grows. If you yearn for connection with that which seems lost, I hope hearing about my odyssey inspires you to find what you seek. If finding that connection is, for whatever reason, legitimately impossible for you, I entreat you to be calm in the knowledge that your ancestors know who you are. Not to be too woo-woo about it, but channeling my ancestors' spirits through performance has definitely taught me this. I would love to share more tales from Returning the Bones, and there are many. But even more, I would like to hear your voice and hear how these stories might resonate with you. Thank you again for letting me share my Sankova and Returning the Bones. Thank you very much, Jen, for being here. And we will open it up to questions and conversation in a second, but there are a couple of announcements to make first. Next week, we will have with us Mayor Jalen Smith. Jalen Smith is an American politician who is the mayor of Earl, Arkansas. At age 18, he became one of the youngest mayors ever elected in the United States. So he will be with us next week. Next week is also the last convocation for this semester, for this term. Uh, speaking of returning the bones, I want to mention quick like that the book, this one is mine, you may not have it, but this is available at the bookstore. Um, so if you'd like to get a copy, if you missed the book sale earlier this morning, this is going to be available at the bookstore. And let's see, Convo Luncheon, we have a couple more spots open at the luncheon. So if you'd like to join, please come up and see me afterwards and we would love to have you. And on that note, let me set down my treasure and let's begin the Q&A. Would like to start us off with a question, a comment about acting, about writing, about, <laughs> about directing. Voice sure. You have someone in the back there. Here we go. Thank you for coming. Um, my question is: What was the biggest challenge you faced when turning it, a, a play, into a book? The biggest challenge. Mm. So many different ones. Um, a tremendous amount of research went into it. That involved a lot of travel, but in a way, I don't think of that as a challenge, you know? Uh, it just took a lot of time, effort, and money. Um, certainly, the most difficult part of all of that was uh, visiting a variety of former uh, labor camps, uh, transit camps, and concentration camps, the main one being Auschwitz, which features prominently in the book and has directly, is directly associated with the title, but I can't tell you <laughs> why. Uh, that's towards the end of the book. Um, 
that was a very powerful experience and difficult. The other difficult thing was, um, you know, I've always been a homework on the bus kind of girl. And so, so sitting my behind down and focusing uh, and not giving myself excuses. You know, I have, a, I have a spouse, I have a child, I have chickens, I have a cat, I have things that need to be cleaned, you know, those classic writing um, barriers. So there are times that I would say, hey, I just gotta leave town. I need to go to the hotel five minutes from the house and just be there and write, but can I come home for dinner because I can't cook? So <laughs> things like that. An unwieldy answer, but I hope that helps. <laughs> Here's one. <laughs> um, it sounds like you had a pretty great resource in your aunt. Mm. Um, can you tell us some more about your your research process and sort of your process of uncovering these stories and the photographs and kind of yeah. what else did you delve into? So it started with her not hanging up on me. Uh, she just basically said, sure, come on out, baby. So I went out there, and uh, I started going through albums, albums, albums. Um, you know, writing memoir from photographs is a thing, so that's a little bit of what it was. But it was great to have her right there. And then I started going through boxes and finding all of these newspaper articles where she was the first black woman to do this, the first black woman to do that. She never talked about that stuff. She... <laughs> She, jumping ahead, um, so she, she had been invited to uh, Obama's first inauguration, but she didn't go because she thought it'd be too chilly and all of that. And, and I asked my cousins, where's the invitation? And they said, oh, she probably used it as a bookmark. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so um, yeah, just having to go back and forth, back and forth, asking her questions, asking her questions. She was always too modest. Digging into boxes, that was the most interesting thing. And that's when I found the bones. But again, that has to do with the end part of the story. Um, and then towards, towards the, sort of towards the end of her life, just before the real onset of dementia, I, I got a grant and went out there with a videographer and got 10 hours of video asking her questions, and I learned that when you are uh, interviewing an elder, uh, just, you, you might have your structure prepared, but just let them go, let them go, let them double back on a story. There might be an additional detail that comes up. And uh, it, it was so good to have that after she passed, but in that period in between, so I had, I had subsequently written the play, and I'd call her up and I'd say, Hi, Auntie. I just did a play about you and got a standing ovation. And she'd always go because of the dementia, but it was sweet. She'd say, you wrote a play about me? <laughs> so that's, that's what it was. And, and then when I went back into the materials to, to write the book, again, there's so much material that I'd forgotten a lot of it and got to relearn it. And because I'm at such a different stage of my life now, especially being a parent, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious in my decisions about sharing things with my son. Yeah. I'm gonna pop in. We have some 40 people on Zoom, and Woo! we have a few questions via Zoom, so I'm gonna select one right now. Hi, Zoom Oops, people. and they're more popping up as we go. Uh, but this one, we'll pick this one. I loved how vibrant the book's dialogue was. I assume because it started as a play. Awesome. Can you say more about deciding to make the book the young adult YA genre? Yeah, the funny thing is that in performing it, I've had audience members as young as 11 and as old as 95, and they all liked it. So I was like, well, you know, they're trying to pigeonhole me and the book. What do I do? But when I thought about who, who would I like to pass these messages on to the most, I thought about the young adult crowd, and that's why I included a, a glossary of historical terms and translations of different languages in the back of the book, because um, if, if a younger person hasn't had someone to mentor them at all in African-American history, by God, I wanted to be the one to do it. Yeah. 
Well, if not, I've got more via Zoom, so I'm just going to go with another one here. Great. Uh, this person writes, I loved how, excuse me, I also love that th the thorough glossary at the end. What are your hopes for young people reading the book? This is kind of I think I just answered it. I, I was going to say it. <laughs> but I'm glad you like the glossary. <laughs> okay. And then we have another one. This one has to do with your son. It says, how has the book play process changed how you raise your son? Mm. There is a line in the book that has, that has a female bent to it. It's when uh, BB is having a panic attack in London. You saw that picture of her in London. I mean, you know, on, in various journals and things, she was like, the only brown face I see anywhere is me in the mirror for days on end, right? Um, and just being in a place where there's such different customs and things like that. She, when she channels uh, Grandmother Sarah, um, or Grandmother Sarah sort of comes to her, the line that Grandmother Sarah says, fundamental to being a lady is kindness. The rest is ornamental. And so I try and skew that for my son in a way that he understands and will hopefully take to heart. I don't care if he is, I mean, of course I care, uh, and I'll try and help him if he's struggling in a particular class, but that's not his inherent self-worth, right? Um, there are a lot, if he, if he has, comes home with this dyed hair and all of this, whatever, I don't care, but kindness, 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 lead with that. That's first, that's the, the root of becoming a quality human being, I think, yeah. Thank you, Jin. Um, I have my question's about your heirloom, your prayer. Um, if it's not too personal, when do you find yourself reciting it? And then also, have you passed it on to others, your son or other family members, and, and, and why? Uh, just my son, and it's usually when I'm watching the news. <laughs> or, or, um, yeah, that's, that's mainly it, um, it because I, well, I think we all know <laughs> what it is to just feel ground down by the news and want to put some kind of a final end to that which has been wearing on you day after day, especially if it's based in <sighs> ignorance, willful ignorance, right? Um, and I do take breaks from the news, but I'm also a news junkie. I, I, I check out four outlets a day in the morning and in the evening. <laughs> and this helps me uh, stomach it, move forward, and think critically, as opposed to just saying, I wish they would all just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Go. Hi. Um, thank you. Where are you? Sorry. There you are. Hi. Hi. Um, my question is, did you make any like edits to the play through writing the book or like through understanding more uh, background about your ancestors or was it pretty much the same throughout? It was pretty much the same. The, the play provided a really good structure for the book, but it is a different beast. Like I also uh, have worked on a screenplay for it, which made it through the first round at Sundance in the Episodics Lab. Um, and that's a completely different beast as well. So I thought I was just going to use that as my uh, show Bible, so to speak. But it just had to keep going in, in different directions. Um, I don't know. We'll see what happens the next time I or some other young actor <laughs> performs the show. It is a show that I would like to pass on for the record. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Just a delight to hear you and see you. Um, I got so stuck on the first line of your prayer that I missed the second line. Would you mm. mind repeating it nice and slow? Sure. Um, let me make sure I get it word for word. <laughs> so, take from us the desire to condemn other folk, which I also like because it doesn't, it's not saying that you can't condemn what is condemnable, right? It's just the desire. 
Take from me the desire to condemn other folk. Give us eyes to see the good in everyone we meet. And I think it's so easy to become blind, especially when we've made that obdurate judgment about somebody. Uh, but, you know, having grown up when, the, when this country was less divided, I know it's possible. So I try and remember that and kind of pair that with that second line. So certainly thank you for coming and um, look forward to reading your book. Um, my question relates to the whole idea of passing mm. um, and the, um, what you allude to in the sense of the benefits of passing, but also the burden um, of passing as well. Can you sort of talk about that as it relates to um, the story? Yeah, there are so many stories that go in so many different directions. So. Oh, <laughs> if, if someone was passing, well, let's go back to slavery. So you have those old slavery terms like quadroon and octoroon that helped uh, human traffickers price their product, right? So if you were passing, there's a really good chance that you would be put into the, the sex trade. Um, and if you were passing and your family thought, you know what, this is a chance for one of us to get out and survive, sometimes people would be put on a train up north and they would say, never contact us again. And so they'd lose their family and then but recreate their lives or in some cases have a really surreptitious uh, relationship with the family. But of course, uh, because of, of colorism, internalized racism, there's that, there were plenty of people who internalized the color hierarchy and uh, based their self-worth on that. And then you had things like the paper brown, the, the paper bag test that was one of those markers of whether or not somebody could join uh, various fraternities, sororities, social clubs, Jack and Jill, Alpha Kappa Alpha, all these places. And so it created also quite a, a schism uh, in the black community. Um, but of course there were also people like um, <laughs> Mordecai Johnson who was passing, who was the president of Howard University for like 50 years or something. and made it, uh, it was integral to the, it being the powerhouse that it is today. So it's an interesting story of people who passed and decided to use that to help bring others with them or who decided to uh, cut bait but also be completely cut off from their families and have no history and then that history gets forgotten or something completely false gets uh, inherited right? <laughs> by the subsequent de generations and then they don't find out until they take a DNA test and they're like well who am I really what is going on um, so yeah and a it, it was in a lot of families there are there are many families where somebody was passing if you spend much time in the southeast you know there's always somebody's auntie who looks like me, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's, a, it's also a taboo topic that is very emotional for everybody on all sides of that. I'm gonna hop I, back. I could go on for hours, but yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to hop back in with another Zoom. The Zoom is lighting up like never before, just so you know. Oh, so nice. thank you, Zoom people. Uh, this one is, I, I selected because, oh shoot, here it is. Hi Jen, from your adoring classmate Leah. Aww. How Hi, did Leah. your, how did your amazing uh, vocal training come into play as you captured voices of your relatives? Ah, okay, so there are 29 characters in the solo show, and it's important to make all of them different. And if I hadn't had vocal training, I'm an associate teacher of Fitzmaurice voice work, which is a voice pedagogy that is taught at Yale School of Drama and NYU and a bunch of other places. 
there is no way I would have been able to have a voice after the first few shows. Uh, so that is really important. But, you know, just as important, important as knowing vocal techniques before each show, I would invite my ancestors to be with me. I would invite them to inhabit me and I try to be a vessel as much as possible. And when I'm able to do it that way, I don't feel things here so much. You know, there's, I didn't come to this concept until later when I went to Bali, but there's this idea of taksu where in, um, It's generally applied to art, but you could be a taxi driver with taksu, meaning that you invite the spirits to, to be with you and you surrender to their guidance. And that's the thing a lot of Americans hate to do, is like, surrender, <laughs> no! Uh, but when you can really, really do that and get into the groove, um, it, your body will go with that particular flow, I think. Yeah. Hi, Jen. My name is Sky. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> so I think Kinda you were excited. beginning. <laughs> um, I think you were beginning to answer my question at the end of that last one, but I wanted to say that you have this brilliant ability to maintain and sustain presence and authenticity within your performance. Thank you. Um, and that's really hard to do, right? Because it's genuine. You just said that you allow yourself to be a vessel of that um, authenticity, yeah. but it also takes a lot of vulnerability. So I guess I'm asking, how do you stay open? Exposure therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So especially when it comes to the personal stuff, the. Uh, it's, so it's like oscillation and titration, right? Moving back and forth between physical and emotional states allows one to expand one's threshold. So get out there, perform, but then I need my introverted time. And I know if I have that, I'm going to be fine. I'll always be able to recover. Um, as I add knowledge, as I add audience uh, comments, things like that. That's like titration, as in metals, when you add one thing at a time carefully to create a stronger alloy. Um, and then along with all of that is, is the love, right? So when I first started acting, I thought about it as a shield, and I wanted something to hide behind. And then the horrible truth was I had to do this in order to elevate my game. And so I try to breathe the audience in right away, uh, feel love for the connection, uh, focus on uh, the light that is within everybody, and connect with that. Uh, some days are harder than others, but I, I lead with the assumption of love. Love it. <laughs> Get those steps in, Noel. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit veering off of your talk today, but I was just wondering, knowing that you're an alum, if you have any general advice for our current students here at Carleton. Yeah, and this is inspired by Tompkin. Tompkin, theater buddy, if you're there, hey. Um, so he and I were talking last night, and he was saying one of the most valuable things that he learned here. It was applying to one situation, but it actually applied to all of his life. And I said, me too, that's what I, I learned too, is that if you want to do something, just do it, right? Um, you, have, you know to incorporate a, a wide array of uh, thoughts, skills, etc., uh, people. <laughs> and if you want to do something, approach it with the attitude of, I'm going to do this, I'm going to figure this out, as opposed to waiting for somebody else to be a gatekeeper, right? Even if it means you got to get down and dirty and go on food stamps, <laughs> you know. Um, just let yourself know that you can do it. And you know what? If, you're, if you are cool to your mentors, it is being on this side. <laughs> now, 
I, if there is somebody with dream and focus, and if I have a really good relationship with them, I love helping them. It is a pleasure. Time doesn't always allow, but I love that. And having been on the other side of the audition table, too, you know, the, just so you know, the auditors want you to succeed. But you have to be open to that, and you have to be open to that within yourself. But if you do that, it's sort of like a magic key. Hi, my name is Will, and I loved your uh, talk. It was brilliant you, and so enjoyable. And I have a question about, I guess, telling stories about your family. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I think a lot of people find their families fascinating. At least I know I do. And I've been trying to learn more about mine, and I really enjoy sharing that. Mm -hmm. But I find it hard sometimes to know when to share and mm -hmm. to know how much, I guess. Yeah. And like, I don't know, it's sort of a half-formed question. Mm -hmm. But how do you, or how did you decide, like, how much to share? And were there some things that you wanted to, but you just couldn't really find the time or place. Yeah. So, having, having an awareness of why you want to share something is key to that and key to understanding what your intuition is trying to tell you in different moments. Um, it, you know, one of the classes I teach is a solo performance class and one of the things that I always say, and I know I'm not the only one, is the story is not about you. Sure, you may be the performer, and it may be all about your people, but the story is not about you. Get clear on your, <laughs> your overall objective and your personal objective. The overall objective is the, um, the universal thing in what it is that you're saying. You know, is it... Uh, is it about finding love? There's that word again. Uh, is it about finding acceptance? Is it about uh, breaking a structure? Uh, is it, you know, something else that we all can kind of sink our teeth into? And then the secondary one is more about what your character or characters want from the world. So when you think about how it will be received, depending on who you're speaking with, that will guide you. Does that make sense? And then there are things that, that may make you go, this is such a juicy story, and I, wanna, I just want to blurt it out right now, but maybe I don't know enough of the context around it. It is worth it to take that extra time, because sometimes you just don't know. Like, you don't know if, if Great Aunt Ella is keeping the, the barn from being burnt up. <laughs> you know, that there might be more to the story. Yeah. Um, and then the more you look into that, the more interesting it is. And definitely, truth ends up being wackier than what we can come up with uh, most of the time. Hope that helps. I'm going to sneak one more in from Zoom, if I may. Okay. Uh, the mention of a Cherokee connection in your family really caught my ear. Do you have any stories about that relationship? The stories I have were basically Auntie Bibi talking about going to visit her grandmother Betty on the reservation. And my Auntie Bibi spoke some Cherokee uh, that she learned from her grandmother. Um, and and she, she, I don't think this gives too much away, she did practice some psychiatry at all kinds of places. So. Uh, for <laughs> celebrities, for people in prisons, for people in reservations, and just business execs. It's kind of remarkable, but uh, she, she did spend time on reservations where Cherokee was spoken as an adult, and that's how she was able to, to maintain a little bit. Um, unfortunately, that is an area where I had to apply a, a lot of fiction, because I wasn't, you know, as you can kind of tell from the photo, 
great-grandmother Betty wasn't a loquacious person, um, and I don't think she shared a lot of stories, unfortunately. Uh, but that's where I wanted to like bring in my imagination and just make her more vivid and just give her a voice because somebody like that, you see, just that picture again, it, it haunts me <laughs> that this is a person who, who just seemed like she was beat down and I wanted her to have some good times, even if it was just fiction. Thank you very much, Jill. Unfortunately, on that, we have to conclude. Thank okay. you very much for Thank being you. here with us. Thank, Thank you everybody. all for being here and our friends on Zoom. We'll see you next week.